You know, I want you to go ahead and open up your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 6. We're going to spend our time together in 2 Samuel 6 and 7, talking about how we as believers are supposed to respond when our plans don't pan out. Now, in our times together that we've had the opportunity to spend, uh, we've been looking really at uh, some of the low points in David's life. Oftentimes, it's easy for people to look at David. There's three biblical books that are written about him, a lot of information given, and they look at the high points, and they gloss right over the low points. And I think that it's important for us to go back and, and do this study through the valleys of David's life, because as we observe the way he responded to those hard times, there are many, many lessons for us to be able to learn for how we too should be responding to similar difficulties in our lives. Now I know a couple of weeks ago we were looking at how believers are to handle the loss of loved ones and grief and that was a, a helpful study I know to me and to my family. And this morning I want us to look at what happens uh, when your plans don't go quite the way you thought they were going to. How are you to respond when God thwarts actively the plans that you thought you had laid and that you had laid them in a way that would honor Him? I mean, have, have you ever had a time in your life before when God changed your plans? When you sought His will faithfully, you examined your life, you, you sought good godly counsel, and then you made a decision and moved ahead only to find out that he put up a roadblock in your path and radically reoriented your steps away from what you thought you should do. I see a lot of nodding heads right now because I know that all of us experience this at different times in our lives. And sometimes it's, it's minor. You know, the camp out gets canceled and we have to find a different campground. <laughs> steps are reoriented. Sometimes, though, it's really, really major. And sometimes that reorientation can be difficult. It can be painful. It can be confusing. It can be hard. It can be disorienting. It can be troubling, even disturbing. And we see God's hand at work, His providence, direct, redirecting our steps if we believe in His sovereignty, and we do, when we believe in His providential outworking of that sovereignty at work in our lives, and we do, then we have to see changes in our direction as being from His hand. You know, the author of Proverbs, David's son, Solomon, maybe even thinking about his father's life, said it really well in Proverbs 16, verse 9. He says, the heart of a man plans his way, but it is the Lord that directs his steps. Now, that doesn't mean that it's wrong of us to lay plans. It doesn't mean that it's wrong of us to think about life in a, in a meaningful and serious way and seek to chart a course. But it is wrong to do that independently from the leading of the Lord. It is wrong when He redirects that plan, unbeknownst to us, for us to resist that redirection. And there is, I think, some lessons for us to be learned in 2 Samuel 6 and 7 about how to respond when, when those kinds of redirections take place. When it, it seems like God has thwarted our plans, how are we to respond. Now, here in 2 Samuel 6 and 7, there are two seemingly unrelated stories that are, that are smashed together in the narrative. And if you're not paying close attention, you might just think that the author is giving it to us in chronological order. But as we're going to see here today, there's actually a lot of similarities and overlap between these two stories. There's a, a lot of kind of thematic things going on that are picked up and repeated in both chapter 6 and 7. Very different stories with very different points, but there's, a point, there's some points of commonality in terms of how David responds to his plans being realigned. You see, in both chapters, David makes his plans, 
in both chapters, God then proceeds to change those plans in some pretty dramatic ways. And in both chapters, David responds to those changes. And in chapter 6, he responds absolutely the wrong way. In chapter 7, he responds absolutely the right way. And so I want us to kind of compare and contrast, work our way through both of these chapters, both of these stories. There's a lot of ground to cover, but uh, the point is going to be this. When your plans are thwarted, it is important that you respond with a humble sense of obedience to what the Lord is redirecting your life to be, all right? So the first point is going to be really complex. It's just simply stated as this, how not to respond, okay? That's 2 Samuel chapter 6, how not to respond. Now, I need to give you a little bit of background as to what's going on here in this chapter. I need to paint a picture for you as to the situation of what's happening here. And to really understand the background of 2 Samuel 6, you have to go all the way back three quarters of a century to 1 Samuel chapter 4, because in 1 Samuel chapter 4, 5, 6, and 7, there are four chapters that are devoted to the losing of the Ark of the Covenant, and that was at least 75 years before the passage we're looking at here together in 2 Samuel chapter 6. Now, we're already trying to bite off a lot by getting through two chapters. I'm not going to try to go back and take out four chapters of 1 Samuel as well, but let me just kind of paraphrase here a little bit what had happened. You see, for the people of Israel, when they lost the ark, it was a really big deal because that ark had been the symbol of God's presence amongst his people for half a millennium by this point. And rather than reverencing God appropriately, they had gotten to the point under Eli's priesthood where they really didn't care much about God. They just were trying to check off the religious boxes to make sure that they weren't defeated in battle. And, and they really didn't care much about worshiping God with the heart that Pastor John was talking about this morning in, in first service. And rather than reverencing God and the symbol of his presence, the Ark of the Covenant appropriately, they just saw it as a, as a talisman for good luck. And they thought, well, if we send the Ark of the Covenant out in front of our forces into battle, surely it'll bring us good fortune. And not only do they proceed to lose the battle, they also proceed to lose the Ark of the Covenant. Where now God's presence for the first time in over 500 years is removed from his people. We'll call that really bad work on account of those people there in that text, right? Well, the ark goes down to the Philistine territory and they can't handle the treasure. While it's, it's with the people of the Philistines, God smashes their idols, he brings disease upon their people, and he generally demonstrates his superiority over them. And while what happens to the Philistines isn't really humorous, the author of Samuel presents it in a very humorous way. To make the point, that God is holy and you shouldn't mess around with him and his presence. The Philistines, after having two chapters of chaos and nightmare, they say, we've got to get rid of this thing. No one wants to touch it, so they put it on a cart and they send it seven miles back up the road to the land of Israel. And the oxen, they wander their way straight back to Israel to the border and they stop in the field of a man named Joshua. Now, you look at these men back in 1 Samuel, Joshua in particular, as, as the ark wanders its way back into his field, I mean, all of a sudden you're there doing your work in the field and the ark of the covenant shows up. I mean, it's like, whoa, what do we do with this thing, 
right? I mean, we lost it, and I wonder if the ark has maybe lost some of its power because it clearly was lost. And so Joshua and the people in his field, they decide, well, the best thing for us to do is make sure that those terrible Philistines didn't steal anything. And so they crack the lid open and open it up. And right away, 70 people hit the dirt dead right there in the field, gone clearly demonstrating that the Ark of the Covenant is still the seat of God's presence amongst His people. And just because it was captured due to your own failure doesn't mean it's lost any of its power or God's presence. He is still there. God did allow it to be captured after all. It wasn't as though God had left and that this symbol of His presence was just powerless. Now that's very important background because these men are immediately killed. The people in the border town say, we've got to get rid of this thing. And so they send it up to the next town at Kiriath-Jerim. They slap the ox, and the ox go off, and the, car, and the cart wanders off to the next town. And it comes to rest in the house of a man named Abinadab, we're told, back in 1 Samuel chapter 7. And in total, it would be at least 60 or 70 years before anyone would think about moving the ark again. It sat there in this man's house for over a generation. That's the background of what's going on as we come into 2 Samuel chapter 6. Okay, we come back to pick up the story 60, 70 years later or so as you go through the chronology. And right away, we see something different in David's heart, right? 2 Samuel 6, 1 through 5, where we see that David has it in his heart to go back and recover this symbol of God's presence and bring it back into the midst of God's people. Go get this thing out of this guy's garage and bring it here into the capital city where people can worship and rightly honor God as they should. His desire is right, right? Where David actually says in the parallel passage over in 1 Chronicles that when Saul became king, he should have gone to get it, but he didn't. And David understands this because over in Chronicles, as Chronicles relates the exact same story, David says to all of his leaders, let us bring again the ark of our God to us because we did not seek for it in the days of Saul. And right away there, you see that David's heart is upright. He wants to do what's right, and he begins to, to make his plans, and he begins to think through, how do we move this Ark of the Covenant, the final nine miles from where it's been in Kiriath-Jerim for, for, for 60 or 70 years, all the way back over nine miles to Jerusalem? And as we see David beginning to lay his plans in chapter 6, verses 1 through 5, he, he makes his plans very carefully. Look at what he does in verse 1. Now David gathered... All the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. He's careful with the attendees to this procession. And he brings anyone who is anyone, all the mighty men of Judah, all the priesthood, we're told over in First Chronicles. He brings a force of 30,000 men with him from all over the land of Israel. This isn't just a last-minute decision. It wasn't like, you know what we should do today? We should go get the Ark of the Covenant. He plans, and he brings people from all over the nation to come and be part of this celebration. He was going to protect it at all cost. And so he's, he's very careful with the people that attend that particular day. Look at verse 2. He's very careful in the way he identifies the Ark of the Covenant. David arose and went with all the people who were with him to Bale, Judah, to bring up from there the Ark of God, which is called by, here's the identifier, the name. The very name of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned above the cherubim. David is under no illusions about whose ark this actually is. This is the ark of the one whose name is so holy and precious that it must not even be named, 
right? He's, it's the name. And he says, it's the name of the very Lord of hosts. David knows who this is, which is important in just a few minutes here. He's careful in the way that he seeks to respect it. Verse 3, he makes plans to place the ark of God on a new cart that they might bring it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were leading the new cart. He, he goes and he, he gets the people who had been responsible for being custodians of the ark to drive this thing because they knew better than anyone else how to, how to treat it with respect because they had lived for it for, for 60 years. And clearly in 60 years, they had not violated its sanctity because if they had, they'd be dead, but they're not. And so they're the best qualified candidates to drive the ark. He's careful in his respect. He has a new cart. And down in verse 5, you find that David and all the house of Israel is celebrating. He's, he's careful with his worship. You see, as David is setting this thing up, as he's making his plans to transport the ark, he's, he's being extremely careful. He's not being sloppy at all. They're, they're being devoted. And, and this is a day that should have happened generations beforehand. And here, they're rejoicing that they are the ones to have the honor of bringing God's covenantal presence back into his covenantal people's midst. They're seeking to honor him. His desires are good. They're upright. His intentions are honorable. So far, so good. He makes his plans well, and he pursues them with his whole heart. But then look what happens in verses 6 through 7. You see God's action. We've seen David's plans, but this is God's action. Now, when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out toward the ark of God and took hold of it for the oxen nearly upset it. And the anger of the Lord burned against Uzzah, and God struck him down there for his irreverence, and he died there by the ark of God. Wow. So as they're going along, they get the procession started, something goes wrong almost right away. The ox stumbles, the ark isn't properly secured, and it starts to tip. And Uzzah the man who had grown up with this symbol of God's presence in his very house reaches out to steady it. Now, if anyone knew how to treat the Ark of the Covenant with respect, it was this man because he had lived with this thing for his entire life. If anyone knew, it was him. And yet, the moment he touches it, he drops dead. You have to ask yourself the question as you read this story, why? I mean, isn't this kind of an overreaction? I mean, us from our modern perspective trying to figure out what's going on here in this narrative, the temptation is to think, wow. I mean, he was really trying to just make sure that this thing didn't end up in the dirt. I mean, why was it necessary for him to die instantaneously without warning? Well, Numbers 4 gives us the answer, and it's very important. You see, the ark was only to be moved, according to Numbers chapter 4, when it was covered by a double covering, not one covering, but two, to make sure that if one covering slipped, it would still be covered over, so that it could not just be seen by all. It was always, whenever it was to be moved, covered not once, but twice. And even then, even as it was being moved, while being covered up with special coverings, it was never to be touched. A lot of time is devoted in Numbers chapter 4 to talking about the poles that must be manufactured to keep people far away from the ark, the rings that must be manufactured to put the poles through to make sure that no one ever, ever touched the ark. 
It was never to be touched. It had to be carried by these special poles that were attached to it, and the people who carried it had to be qualified Levites. Now here in this text, despite David's plans that he had laid, he didn't follow any of those commands, which betrays a certain ignorance of the law of God. He was the one responsible for this, not necessarily Uzzah. He is the one who should have known better because as king, it was the very first job that he was to have as king was to do what? According to Deuteronomy, read the law. He should have known, and yet either he forgot or he was unaware, but either way, he did not obey it. You're supposed to carry it in a specific way. You don't just stick it in the back of an ox cart. And David didn't follow any of those commands. And you certainly didn't ever touch it. Numbers 4.15 says, But they must not touch the holy things, for if they do, they shall surely die. Why? Because the Ark of the Covenant was the symbol of God's presence amongst his people. And therefore, it was the symbol of his very person. And his person is utterly and absolutely holy without any imperfection whatsoever. And any time human flesh comes into contact with the divine, death must be the result. Unless that individual has been redeemed by the blood of Christ, justified by God the Father, sanctified by the Holy Spirit, and perfected through glorification. And then, and only then, can they stand in the presence of the glorious holy God. Therefore, for that reason, God's holiness, if you touch it, you die. It's because God is a holy God and man is sinful. Here's the equation that you need to keep in mind because it's going to come back into play in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Dirty hands plus a pure God equals dead human. It's really simple, okay? It's going to come back to be very important next chapter. You see, David forgot the God that he served and his plans, while well-intentioned, were insufficient. And God changed those plans. And he brought the whole day of celebration to a screeching halt because David had not laid his plans appropriately. Now, how did David respond? Oh, look how he responds. Verses 8 through 11. David, get this, became angry because of the Lord's outburst against Uzzah. Now, this is for David a major moment of embarrassment. I mean, he has the whole nation there watching, and now there's a dead man in the middle of the path, and the ark can't keep going. And his whole plan has come unraveled and undone because he was ignorant and disobedient, frankly. His plans have fallen apart in front of the whole nation. A man is dead, all because he did not properly understand the law. And David's confronted with a choice. Here. recognize the holiness of God and humble himself to submit to the divine lesson and the alteration of his plans or get angry and lash out in embarrassment, resentment, and frustration. And that's the choice he chooses to make. Verse 8, he basically asks God, how could you do this as his anger burns against God for God having had his anger burn against Uzzah? Verse 9, we find that David is afraid of the Lord and he said, how am I supposed to get the ark of God to come to me if no one can touch this thing? He says, how could you do this and why would you do this? And in verse 10, he says, you know what, God, you're not safe. 
And David was unwilling, verse 10, to move the ark of the Lord into the city of David with him. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. I'm sure he had his advisors there whispering in his ear saying, you do remember what, time, what happened the last time this ark was brought into a city, right? The Philistines, everyone got tumors and died. David, leave it here. So David does. He says, God, you're not safe. Verse 11, I'm leaving you here. Thus the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite three months. You see, David's heart here reveals a heart of pride because he had his plans, his intentions, and he sought to act out on those plans. But because those plans were not perfectly in line with God's standard, God thwarts those plans. And right there in front of David was Uzzah's body, a visible reminder of God's holiness. And yet in David's response to his plan being changed, he still continues to fail to calibrate for the holiness of God. He fails to remember the lesson that's given to us in Isaiah chapter 55, verse 8, where God says, My thoughts are not your thoughts, and my ways are not your ways, declares the Lord. For as high as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. You see, God's plans did not line up with David's plans. And when David's plans came off the rails, he failed to calibrate for who his God was. There's an important lesson, I think, here at this point. Whether or not the change in plans that you may be experiencing in your life, whether or not that's due to your own failure to follow God's will or just simply to God's divine design in redirecting your path, the wrong response, always the wrong response, is to continue to pursue your own ends or even worse, to get angry in the face of God's redirection. You see, David here, he should have recognized the holiness of God. He should have dropped on his face, repented and submitted his plans to what he found out to be true about God's law and his holiness. But he doesn't. He failed to see the perfection of God and the pivot away from his own game plan. And that, that is the ultimate tragedy in the story of Uzzah. Because when God changes your course, when he rejects your plan, when he redirects your path, don't resist his leading. Don't rebel against his power over you, and don't fight his will with anger. Instead, humble yourself and follow him as the one who is ultimately responsible to chart your path. Insisting on your own way, it does nothing more than reveals a heart of pride. James chapter 4 verse 6 says that God opposes the proud, but it's to the humble that he gives grace. You see, David's son Solomon would learn this lesson and, and later explain the principle this way in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and don't lean on your own understanding, but instead in all your ways acknowledge him, the one who is holy, great, and utterly different than you, and he is the one who will make your path straight even when your plans get all totally jumbled up and you're looking at them saying, how am I supposed to untangle that mess? Trust him, look to him, and follow him. I think that's my question for you this morning as we look at the point of how not to respond. Are you looking to the Lord for direction in your life? Because where you stand today, you stand there because God's placed you there. The challenges that are before you are there because God has put them there. The only right response is to submit yourself to his direction, not to rely on your own understanding. 
As we look at this text and we see David stomping off, embarrassed, and afraid, angry, disappointed, and confused, we can't miss that. Finally, three months later, David gets back around to thinking through, you know what, the law actually says how to do this. And Obed-Edom's house is being blessed, so the Ark of the Covenant is clearly not cursed. It's just that I didn't approach it appropriately. And this time, David goes back, he reads the law, and he does it the right way. And it's amazing to see what happens as he does it, right? Uh, look at verse, we're not going to go through the rest of this chapter before we get to chapter 7, but just look at uh, verse, verse 13. And right away you'll notice something. So it was that when the oxen who were bearing the cart that the ark was on, it's not what it says. So it was that when the bearers of the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrifices an ox and a fatling, right? He had gone back into the law and found out, oh, <laughs> there's a right way to do this. And he begins to conform his plans to the law of the Lord. It's a beautiful picture of what you're supposed to do after he had already responded the way you're not supposed to respond. It's amazing if you do the math on that, actually, nine miles every six paces means he sacrificed 6,000 animals that day. I mean, one whole herd of oxen, one whole flock of fatlings gone because he wants to make sure that God is honored. Let's do this the right way and let's make sure we honor God. And so he brings his plans into alignment with the law of the Lord, which leads us into our second story here that we need to look at. And this is the story in chapter 7 that shows us how we must respond when our plans get changed. Okay, we've seen the way you don't respond. This is how you do respond. 2 Samuel chapter 7. Now, again, let me give you a little bit of background as to what's going on here in this text. And I just want to say up front, we've already looked at the theological implications of 2 Samuel 7. We did that on Christmas Sunday last month. So there's a lot more in this particular chapter than we're going to get into today, all right? This is one of the most important chapters in the entire Old Testament. And our point today is not to just completely uh, mine out everything there is to say about the nature of the Davidic covenant. It's to learn a lesson that is kind of a thematic emphasis that overarches chapters 6 and 7, okay? That relates to God's, plan, God's plans versus David's plans, okay? Right away in verse 1, we find this. Now, it came about when the king lived in his house... And the Lord had given him rest on every side from all his enemies. The situation here is very soon after he finally finished moving the ark the right way. And David finds that he's at rest. He's got a nice house. We can pinpoint exactly where that house was. In the ancient city of Jerusalem, it sat on a narrow peninsula of land with steep valleys on either side and, and a broad plain that kind of sat above the city. And David's palace sat right on the edge of that broad plain, looking down over the city, and he could see every dwelling that there was in that whole city to be seen. He could see it from the top of his house. Beautiful, big house. It's, it's well fortified. It's comfortable. And he realizes that I've got a great place. But the Ark of the Covenant is sitting underneath a pitched tent in the plain outside the city next door to my palace. There's something wrong with this picture. And so David reveals his heart here in 2 Samuel 7, 2 through 3. The king says to Nathan the prophet, Hey, look, see now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells inside of tent curtains. Nathan said to the king, 
Go, do all that is in your mind, for the Lord is with you. Now here again, as we enter into this chapter, we find David making his plans yet again. And once more, his plans are good. They are upright plans. Just like in chapter 6, his desire was for God to be honored. His desire was to have God's presence there in his midst, next to him and with the people of God. And once again, he's making plans to honor God and do what's right. And he says, how am I supposed to live in this cedar-lined palace when God lives in a tent? We've got to do something about this. And Nathan approves the plan because on the face of it, it's noble and it's upright. And David is making his own plans. He's even learning from his past mistakes and seeking to do it the right way by, by talking to Nathan first and getting his godly counsel before he starts swinging hammers. How happy he had to have been. Can you imagine? When Nathan says, that's a good plan, David. You should do that. I give my permission on behalf of God. Go do this thing that you have set out to do. That's David's heart. He begins to make his plans. Well, once again... In 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 4 through 17, those plans get derailed, thwarted by the divine hand of God. You see God's action here in these verses, where David's desires were noble, but they were still misguided according to what God has to say, because God had his plan, and that plan, once more, did not match up with David's. And God changes the plan. You see, David goes to bed in verse 3, dreaming all about blueprints, all about construction teams, all about how to hire the right contractors. I get to build God a house. He even said I could. Isn't this great? I'm moving forward in the morning. That same night, we're told, God comes to Nathan. He changes the plan in a really definitive way. Verse 5, go and say to my servant David, thus says the Lord. Oh, not going to argue with that. And God has changed the plan. You see, God didn't need a house. And he communicates that to David in a way that's actually almost a little bit dismissive in the way that that he kind of slaps David's good, noble desires down a little bit. And he says, David, we're paraphrasing all these verses here. What makes you think I need a cedar panel? I need cedar paneling. What makes you think I need a solid roof? David, are you trying to contain me to prove something for me that I lack? I've never lived in a house, and yet I've always been the God of Israel. I've always been with Israel, and never once have I said, why haven't you built me a house? Don't forget, David, who you are and who I am. I am the Lord, the one who builds houses. You're a shepherd who is nothing. You're, you're, you're only a, a king because I made it so. Look what he says. Verse 6, I have not dwelt in a house since the day I was brought up, this, since the day I brought up the sons of Israel from Egypt, even to this day, that I've been moving about in a tent, even a tabernacle, wherever I have gone with all the sons of Israel, did I speak a word with one of the tribes of Israel, which I commanded to shepherd my people, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? He's like, David, if I didn't need it before, why do I need it now? Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, This is the part where he says, don't forget who who you are. I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, David. You think you're leading so many men today? When I found you, you were following. You weren't leading men. You were following sheep. And I made you to be ruler over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you have gone and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make you a great name. 
like the names of the great men who are on the earth. And here God does something very interesting. He, he flips the script on David. He says, you're not going to build me a house as though you are capable of providing anything for me. No, quite the contrary. God says, I am going to build you, David, a house. And it's not going to just be a cedar-lined palace. It is going to be an eternal house that I will come and dwell in your midst. I will work with your family and ultimately send my Messiah through your lineage. And in the process of building this house of David, he would provide for David and all mankind a Savior who would come forth from that house. He changes God's plan and dumps them on their head in order to prove who was actually in charge of providing anything. You say, wow, well, that's amazing promise. It must have been really easy for David to respond the right way, right? I mean, yes, his plans got changed, but look what he got out of the deal. Instead of having to build a giant temple, God says, I'm going to build you, David, a house that will last forever in the form of a dynasty. Should have been easy for David to change his plans, but not so fast. Because there's another reason for why God denied David that isn't recorded in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And this is where chapter 6 comes into play. You see, it's actually recorded in 1 Chronicles chapter 28 verse 3, where David is explaining to his son Solomon, this is why you must build the temple and why I could not. Listen to what he says. It's, an, it's, a, it's another reason. He says, I had it in my heart to build a house of rest for the ark of the covenant of the Lord and for the footstool of our God. And I actually began making preparations for building. But God said to me, you may not build a house for my name, for you are a man of war and your hands have shed blood. He says, your hands are dirty. You can't build my house. Remember our equation from before? Dirty hands, pure God, dead human. God comes to David and says, David, your hands are dirty. And I'm about to bring my own presence and stick it in the midst of your family forever. Whoa. Dirty hands, holy God, when those things mix, it doesn't go well for the human beings who are involved. You say, wait, what? This detail pulls into focus the events of chapter 6, which Uzzah, which had to have been in David's mind, and chapter 7 with David. And it's critical to understand the comparison of these two texts. Because the hands of Uzzah, you see, they were impure. And when he touched the symbol of God's presence with those impure hands, the consequence was that he died. And David responded very poorly. But here, David is told that his hands are now impure, and that God's not symbolic presence, but very real presence, was going to dwell in the midst of David's house forever in a much more than just a symbolic way. David already knew from Uzzah that dirty hands and God's presence don't mix. And, and this is almost a carbon copy of the prior situation. And yet this time it's not Uzzah that's in the crosshairs, it's David. I mean, yes, this is an amazing promise, but it has terrifying implications. This is not the plan that David went to bed thinking about. I mean, he could have woken up in the morning and heard this from Nathan and said, wait a minute, you already approved this, and all I've done is seek to please you. All I've done is wage war on those whom you've, been com who, whom you've commanded me to wage war on. God, you're the one who told me to wage war. 
and now you're telling me that I'm impure because I obeyed you? He could have responded in the same kind of anger. He could have stomped off once again, but he doesn't. Look at what David does here in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 8. Look at the different way that he responds. And in the same way, I think we'll find some lessons for how we should actually respond as well. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 18. He begins by acknowledging the greatness of God's promise and his own unworthiness. Then David the king went in and sat before the Lord, and he said, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me this far? And yet this was insignificant in your eyes, O Lord God, for you have spoken also of the house of your servant concerning the distant future. And this is the custom of man, O Lord God. You see, instead of getting angry, he acknowledges God's greatness and he says, who, who am I but your humble servant? He goes on and he acknowledges the greatness of God's salvation. And again, he acknowledges his own unworthiness. In verse 20 through 21, he says, again, what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God. For the sake of your word and according to your own heart, you have done all this greatness to let your servant know of these things. See, he's acknowledging the greatness of God's promise and person. He's acknowledging the greatness of God's salvation. And all along the way, he's bowing down saying, you are great and I am nothing. You are great and I am nothing. And I will bring my plans into alignment with yours. He goes on in verse 22. He acknowledges not just the greatness of God's promise and his salvation, but he acknowledges, the greatness, he acknowledges the greatness of God's person while again affirming his own unworthiness. Verse 22, he says, For this reason you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you. There is no God beside you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. I mean, this is a far cry from stomping off with us a lying in the road, right? I mean, he is saying there is no God like you. And what one nation on the earth is like your people Israel? whom God went to redeem for himself as a people and to make a name for himself and to do great things for you and awesome things for your land before your people whom you have redeemed for yourself from Egypt, from nations and their gods. I mean, look at the number of times he mentions God's name or refers to him as you in that verse. He says, for you have established for yourself, your people Israel, as your own people forever. And you, O Lord, have become their God. Now, therefore, O Lord God, the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and his house, confirm it forever and do as you have spoken, that your name, there it is, that your name may be magnified forever by saying, the Lord of hosts is God. And may the house of your servant David be established, not to be great like God, but may it be established before you in worship. Whoa! You see, David's response to this change of plans is wholly different. He, he goes back and he looks at the greatness of God and instead of stomping off in anger, he recognizes that God is different. And therefore, whatever plans I may have had, they can go to the trash heap because all that matters is me fulfilling God's plan because he is sovereign master of the universe. I mean, look at him. Look at the greatness of his person. Look at the greatness of his salvation. Look at the greatness of his promise. 
He goes on. And again, he reaffirms his own unworthiness. And he affirms the greatness of God's plan in comparison to his own. Verses 27 through 29. He says, your plan is great. It wasn't my plan, but I'm going to go with it. He says in verse 27, For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made a revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. And therefore your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. Now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are truth. I mean, David's just reminding himself, what, what do I know? What do I know? What do I know? You are God. I know that. Your words are true. I know that. And you have promised this good thing to your servant. I know that. And therefore I'll cling to those things. And I'll form up my plans accordingly. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken. And with your blessing, may the house of your servant be blessed forever. Wow. That's really different from chapter six, right? I mean, it's amazing how different it is. His second response to this sovereign changing of his plans is different. And instead of running for God and saying, stick him in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite, what does David do? He says, I need to be near you. I need to know you. And I need to cling to that which I know to be true. And then conform everything that I choose to do from here on out to what you have revealed to me as being your plan. Because he knows that his own desires, they don't hold a candle to God's sovereign will. And so his response is one of humility that recognizes the greatness of God and the goodness of his plans, despite the fact that they weren't David's own plans. Here's what I love about this. Let's rewind the tape just a few verses. I want you to look at verse 18 of 2 Samuel chapter 7. Because right away, I mean, David, the equation stuck in his head, dirty hands, pure God, dead human. But what does he do in verse 18? Does he run as far away as he can from the Ark of the Covenant? What does he do? Then David, the king, I love this. He doesn't run. He goes in. He doesn't stand with pride in his heart. He sits before the Lord. He sits down before the Ark of the Covenant in the puny little tent that he had made. And then he prays this prayer. He goes in and sits before the Lord. See, when God changed his plans in moving the ark, David left it and ran away in fear. But this time, no, this time he had much greater reason to fear than he did the first time. But rather than running, you see, he draws near to the Lord to seek to understand his heart. And rather than, than responding with proud anger, he humbles him, his heart. And he pours out his heart before God. And he seeks to align himself with what God is revealing as the new plan. It was a plan at odds with what David had desired. And God would never give David the desire of his heart. He saved that honor for David's own son. And that's instructive. That we may have desires and we may say, God, I'll relinquish my plan to you. But I'm pretty sure that sometime down the road, you're going to circle back and make sure that I get this thing, right? That didn't happen here. David did not get the desire of his heart because he discovered a desire that was so much purer and so much greater than that thing he desired. What he discovered 
was the joy and the fulfillment that comes from knowing you are pursuing not your own ways, but the ways of the Lord. And they are so much higher than anything David or you, by extension, could ever possibly imagine. And that's the lesson for us. When the plans change, when God redirects our steps down a road that we did not anticipate, and maybe it's a road that we would still say, I really don't want it. How do we respond? Anger, fear, abandonment, or humble adoration that recognizes his greatness and our own insufficiency. You see, David, he, he relinquishes his plans because he recognizes now the holiness of God and he, he knows the impurity of his hands. And the only thing to do when God throws up some roadblocks is to bow before his sovereign will, to back away from your own broken desires because his ways are righteous. His ways are holy, His ways are true, and His ways are right. And that should impact the way that we live today. As we close here this morning, turn with me over to James chapter 4. Because I think the implication for how we're supposed to walk out of here and live is captured very poignantly in James chapter 4, where the author of James makes it pretty clear Okay, well, if I'm not supposed to live according to my own desires, I'm supposed to follow the will of God, how should that impact the way that I walk? How should that impact the way that I talk? How should that impact the way that I plan? And how should it impact the way that I respond when the plan changes? Here is what the author of James says. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and, and make a profit. And these men are, are laying plans. They're doing things. The author of James says, you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow because you're just a vapor that appears for a little while and then it vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say the lesson that David learned. You ought to bring your life into alignment with the will of God instead of just striking out to do your own thing, make your own plan. Instead of doing your own thing, say, if the Lord wills, we will then live and also will seek to do this or that. You see, regardless of how pure you believe your motives to be, no matter how well-intentioned your plans may have been, when God intervenes to change your pathway, and things don't pan out the way you thought they were going to, don't fight, fold. Don't boast, bow. And don't double down on your own ways. Instead, double back to Him. You see, you have to take refuge in His perfection, in His holiness. Because if you don't, it will resist you and ultimately will kill you. His thoughts are higher than yours. You may plan your way, but it is the Lord who establishes your steps. Let's close in prayer this morning. Our Father, we thank you for the lessons that we've seen from your word. Lessons about the nature of who you are. Lessons about the way that you have interacted with humankind, mankind, through the family of David to bring us your Messiah, who has brought us to a place where we can now know you. And in knowing you, we find your will for our lives. And so because you have been so faithful to us in providing us with such a great salvation, may we be faithful to walk according to that which you've called us to. When that means that things change, may we respond in humility. 
May there not be anger resonant within our hearts that's ultimately aimed at you, but rather may we be people who respond obediently, humbly, seeking to walk before you and align ourselves with your great and sovereign will. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.